Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. In this powerfully vulnerable and honest episode of Mandy Leto, we explore the ongoing journey of healing from overachieving and not feeling good enough. Mandy shared her own experience of this work in progress of trying to no longer base her worth on achievements and praise, and instead of feeling worthy for being who she is, imperfections and all. We explored the signs that her body was saying no to more striving, as well as the wake-up call she just couldn't ignore. We finished this episode by thinking about how imperfect people are more likeable and get a deeper connection with others than seemingly perfectly put together people. Dr. Mandy Letter is a personal and executive coach and writer living in London. She has a doctorate from Cambridge University and in her former career she was a director at a global investment bank in the city. She has written for or featured in Psychology's magazine, The Sunday Times, Psychology Today, The Huffington Post and many others. She's a recovering overachiever, as you can hear from that resume, who's on a mission to help women to identify less with their doing and more with their being. She believes that when we show up from a heart-centered, I'm enough place, sharing our gifts and opinions from a place of service rather than trying to be impressive, then life shifts. On with the show. Welcome so much to the podcast episode, Mandy. I'm so pleased to have you here. And it's it's a delight to talk about being enough, having enough and doing enough today, because this is one of your favorite topics, I know. So let's just start by hearing a bit about your story. I know that you feel like you're quite an open book. You just said that to me before we started today and kind of working on your memoir. So tell me a little bit about your story. Why are you so passionate about enoughness and self-worth? Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat to come and hang out with you and talk about a subject that is indeed really, really close to my heart. And it's a journey that started for me a really long time ago. And I think it's probably similar for a lot of real people who are strivers, who are driven, who might have kind of type A Aries personality. I learned about my value really young as a child that I was exceptionally lovable and exceptionally valued and worthy when I achieved great things. So when I came home Mm. with trophies and blue stars and, and ribbons, I would be celebrated. And it was, it was the opposite when I wasn't. So it, you know, we learn so much by the time we're even 10 years old about who we are in the world and how we're supposed to perform. And this is one of the things that I really took to heart. I was a smart little kid and I figured out quite quickly that, ah, if I'm the best, if I'm constantly striving, this creates a kind of immunity from criticism. Plus it means that people celebrate me, they pick me up and spin me around and take me for ice cream. And so my little kid brain figured that out really quickly. And that served me hugely well through high school, through university, through even through some of my first jobs is being this driven, really determined, laser focused person has massive, massive payoffs. So Mm. I think that is, that's actually like, that was my realization that enoughness was something to be earned And of course, as a child, I never languaged it like that. Like, actually, it's only recently that I've figured this out, having spent a lot of time coaching others on it, um, writing a column for Psychology's magazine on it, and also writing a memoir on this very topic. It's a very recent phenomena that I realized I've spent my entire life hustling for worthiness, and I'm exhausted. Well, I guess that's that's so true. And it's very much the story of all the clients I work with. So the high striving, people on the verge of burnout or people who feel that they, they always please others. They're sort of hustling for that approval. And what you said is so true around the sort of almost like putting up a, a barrier towards criticism, almost like we're putting on a suit of armor that's going to protect us and keep us safe. 
And it has served you well. Clearly, it's taken you lots of beautiful places. And there's something I see a lot with my high striving clients. In what way do you think it's not served you so well? Well, it only started to not serve me in a way that I started to pay attention was, I mean, of course, if I look back, there was a trail of destruction in other ways, but I could always outsmart that or build logic around it. But it's only when the wheels started falling off for me physically, when I started to go into the tailspin of burnout and fibromyalgia. And a lot of people for many years had been warning me, you can't continue at this pace. And I, I, I would just think like, I'm, I would almost take that as a challenge. It's like, oh, you don't know me. You clearly don't know me. <laughs> and I think mm. there, the danger in, in being this kind of really driven place is there's always this nexting. This phenomena of nexting and the ante needs to be upped at such a compelling, ridiculous rate to get the same buzz out of achieving. So I think there, there comes a time where there, I just couldn't, I couldn't strive it, make a big enough goal that I could achieve that would give me the same dopamine hit or that would give me the same juice. Then I, I just kept throwing myself at the wall more and more and faster and bigger and what have you. And then my body was just like, mm -mm, we're not playing ball with this ridiculous punishing work schedule anymore. And there were signs along the way, but I didn't listen. And I would just like, okay, I'll drink some of that juice that tastes like grass clippings and I'll take some spirulina tablets and, you know, maybe chill out and read a novel at the weekend, get my hair done, something like that, and then go back to it. And... I think in this case, for somebody who's, I'm quite a smart woman, I have a PhD, but I was a bit duh about listening to all the signs that my body was starting to fall apart. And it was really only when I left my investment banking career, and then I had two small children, a newborn, and I started a business, and then I started another business, and I was determined to get it up to my same pay grade very, very quickly. And I just didn't pay attention to the signs that my body was desperate for rest. I blamed it on being the mother of a, a newborn thinking, yeah, I can do this. I've done bigger things. And it was only slowly where I started to need more coffee during the day. I started to like need a ridiculous amount of carbs. And then the only way I could bring myself down from being on that artificial high all day was drinking a glass or two or three of wine every evening to get myself out of that system. And then I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning, completely wired, sweating, tossing, turning, and then try to get myself some more sleep for another couple of hours until I had to drag my sorry ass out of bed and start the kind of self-medicating with coffee. And I think because the, the urge to achieve, I actually think it's like an addiction. And the thing that's so insidious about it is we're praised for it. It's the only addiction that we get praised for. You know, it's, you don't, my dad was an alcoholic. He, he didn't get praised for that. <laughs> or if somebody's into gambling or what have you. But this is something that we get praised for, which is, I think, one of the reasons I also didn't pay attention. So I got to a stage where I couldn't even climb the stairs. I was climbing stairs like I was holding the wall and my heart was hammering. And, you know, I was ending up lying down and going into these comatose sleeps for three, four hours at a time when I thought I was just going to lay down and close my eyes. And I kept going to the doctor and they said, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. So the self-talk was, you're just weak. You're pathetic. And those were some of the physical signs. And also the self-talk, I notice now in hindsight that my self-talk became less compassionate less kind. I mean, I was never particularly mm. kind to myself to begin with, but it, it just it felt like everything ratcheted up to a level where even I started to realize that this was not sustainable. Mm. What made you realize that after ignoring the early warning signs for so long and almost seeing that as a well, challenge accepted. I am not weak. Oh, I should be able to do these things that other people tell me that I can't do. Mm. What, what did you actually... When did the, the penny finally drop? The penny finally dropped when I was at the gym. And because the doctors had told me that nothing was wrong with me, I decided to hire the most intimidating looking personal trainer on their website with these big legs like mature oaks. And he, he had me do high intensity interval training because I said, I want energy with three exclamation marks on the form that I filled in. So he had mm. me doing this high intensity interval training and basically you run on the treadmill 
full throttle for a couple of minutes. I was like practically foaming at the mouth. And then you slow down and doing this. And they said, now we're going to do boxing. And I, I completely collapsed doing the boxing. And I dragged myself home and had a shower. And I got into bed. I was freezing, like as if I'd come out of an ice bath. And I completely blacked out for a couple of hours. It was only when the school was ringing saying, oh, is there some kind of a mix up with your daughter's pickup today? <laughs> I'm still in my oh, robe goodness. with this like sheet marks on my face and jumping out of bed. And I just thought, oh, man, this can't go on. Yeah. And this that's a real wake up call for you. It is. And then that together with the I think I was trying to hide it from my husband. I was trying to hide it from my I didn't want to face it myself that I was weak. And that's something I had never, ever been. And it, it just didn't make sense to me. So I was just, my approach was like, let's just ignore it and go for the things that have always worked. For example, like intense cardio. Hmm. So yeah, then that was when this journey actually started of me kind of having to dry out from my overachieving ways. And that was a really dark period. Because you had to almost free yourself from some of those dopamine kicks or as it's almost like going into sobriety after being deep in addiction and my worth as a human being feeling like it's diminishing rapidly every single day where yeah. I can't achieve or I have to say no to a client or I have to say no to a speaking gig and just actually I realized how much I was using busyness as a numbing agent yeah. and still being praised for it so that period of just kind of, I was basically bedridden for about a year. I went on, I went on an intense program with my nutritional therapist. I was having acupuncture, but the irony is, and this is what I write about in my book, the irony is I took on my healing with the same type A intensities. I'm like, I'm going to be the best meditator, <laughs> meditate for hours a day. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, I won't eat anything I'm not supposed to eat. No alcohol shall touch my lips henceforth, no caffeine. So I think the whole point is over about 18 months of having this kind of drying out period, I wouldn't allow myself to surrender. I still went into this place like, I'm going to fix myself so quick and snap back. I'm going to be even better than before. And I got to a stage where she had to kind of delicately tell me, my nutritional therapist that is, is like, You've gotten as far as you're going to get. I got, I was functional after about 18 months, but still nowhere near the old me. And then she said, the rest is actually an inside job. Mm -hmm. I think she was trying to find a delicate way of telling me that unless I change my way of relating to life and relating to achievement and the way that I was hustling for worthiness and good enoughness, every time I got a bit better, I would just slide back to where I was. Yeah. So that was where a whole different level of the journey started at that stage. What changed for you then when you realized that it sounds like you were even using self-care as a means to an end? You know, if I really am perfect at looking after myself, I'll get back into achieving. I can keep earning that worthiness by getting back on track and keep doing again. So at what point did you realize that this this inner work needed to be different to some of the outer work you'd already been doing? It took about six years. And frankly, spoiler alert, it's still ongoing. I think this is so mm -hmm. dyed in the wool for me. I went on, a, I, I arranged a series of helpers and healers to go on this journey with me. I started off with a nutritional therapist. I got a coach. My coach sent me on a series of increasingly <laughs> bizarre, uncomfortable challenges, including like her favorite line was, you got to get out of your head and drop into your body. And I'd get a blinky facial tick listening mm. to this phrase enough times like, okay, I will get out of my head and into my body. So she sent me for five rhythms dancing, for example. And of course, being the way that I was, I decided that I was going to learn some steps before I go to the class, you know, for this mm. dance where there's you still have to be good at it. where there's no steps, you know, it's free form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I bought the DVDs and I practiced in the sitting room and I finally got plucked up the courage to go to this thing. And I think the funny thing is, it's just watching how now in hindsight, watching how my inner voice, my inner critic, if you want to call it that, just started really having a wobbly through this process. And for me to start becoming aware of that inner critic as almost a character in my head, that was a sign that things were moving ahead. So doing the five rhythms dancing, I mean, I went to different women's retreats where we did everything from conversing with our lady parts to, you know, having deep 
spiritual conversations to journaling to dancing in the nude you know you name it i did it and then th there was this this constant realization that no matter how well i did that thing it wasn't scratching the itch and I didn't want to surrender. I thought surrender for me was equated with giving up. And it was only after seeing several other healers and traveling to different parts of the planet and sitting on a mountainside in Sedona with, with a healer and having a former Navy SEAL walk all over my body and release stuff, I started to realize that actually what I didn't want to surrender to was my feelings. Mm. And that's what I had been numbing out all of my life was my feelings of not enoughness, my feelings of what if I'm not the best? What if I don't even want to be the best? All of this, this doubtful dialogue, this imposter syndrome, these squinchy young parts of myself that were never validated for just being without having mm. to constantly be doing and achieving and winning. And I fought that tooth and nail. I didn't want to feel those feelings because I thought it would be like just reeling into a dark pit that I would never, ever be able to get myself out of. So that is what I started realizing was the pattern of working with all of these helpers and healers and these various modalities. Like I did Tantra, for example, and that's all about feeling your feelings or, you know, having somebody lay hands on you and... I was much more comfortable being the person doing that, you know, taking on the kind of role as pseudo expert or student, what have you. But having that done to me, it really, really took me off keel. And it was realizing that that old me wasn't actually accessible to me anymore as memories and feelings started coming up and things I hadn't thought about maybe ever so all of a sudden, I'm in this messy place where this this place that I had been trying to get back to was the old me. She didn't exist anymore. That portal has closed. The place I'm in now, feeling all these feelings, it's a mess. I can't numb because the feelings are fire hosing up now that I had suppressed for years and years and years. I'm like, well, oh shit, isn't this just dandy now? <laughs> where was I? Don't know. Yeah. I don't know how to get myself out of this. And that was exactly the point. I needed to hear that lesson several times. Like there's nowhere to get to. Feel no, the feelings. wherever you go, there you're going to be. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it took a long time for me to realize that there was no way I could circumvent or cleverly navigate around or ignore or orphan off those other parts of me that felt inadequate or too ugly, too stupid, too inadequate, too, you know, never going to make anything of yourself, too old, too past it, too irrelevant. Like, it's just that that inner voice in my head had, head had all the bases covered. That no matter what I did, it was, it was all going to end up in despair. Hmm. So it was... I, every time I felt it was like, okay, this, it can't get any worse than this, then it would, it would get, there would be a new low. But the funny thing is, as I kept going and allowed myself to trust, because I wasn't fully healed yet, we're not like, the, you can imagine like all of this stuff is exhausting to the body as well. So there was a certain time where I just had to allow myself to, when I realized there was no going back, I just didn't have the energy. And maybe that was the, the place of just allowing these feelings to kind of hit me. And then realizing like, oh, I'm not going to actually die of these feelings. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable, but I can endure this breath by breath. And that was, that was really a big learning for me was I had spent a lot of my time entirely living either in the past of how I had grown up on a, in a tiny community in Northern Ontario in Canada. And, you know, like I'm coming from the sticks. So I have to be somebody important. I have to work harder than everybody else. So I was either facing Pat in the past or I was, I'm in a, not in a good place now. And therefore the future is the place where I'm going to set my gaze. So I was, I was living anywhere, but in the present. And when I was being bombarded by all of these emotions bubbling up, for probably over the period of at least a year or two. I couldn't be anywhere else but in the moment. And that was terra incognita for me because I hadn't really ever been present in the present. 
And you had lots of different ways of preventing yourself from staying in the present by either upregulating with caffeine or hit classes or other energizing things or downregulating with other substances like wine and to, to never really have to be just as you were, mm. to ne- never have to just sit there. And this is something which we know from the research around perfectionists working through mindfulness that actually it's highly aversive for a lot of people. They hate the experience because it, br- it brings into mind and focus what they've been trying to suppress. So no wonder that you did everything within your power, even in your own healing journey, to not have to do that. You know, there was lots of things, lots of boxes you could tick through working with other parts of your body. Um, you know, thinking about ac- acupuncture, all of these things will bring up emotions if we allow them to. Yeah. Mindfulness will be highly emotive if we allow it to. Talking to a nutritionist will be highly emotive if we allow it to. But it's the resistance in you, which I hear so often from other high strivers as well and overachievers that I'm just resisting going to that place because I just don't know. If I open those floodgates, will I be able to close them again? Will I just fall apart and fall into the abyss? And I guess you had that experience of over years progressing with your healing did you feel that you fell into the abyss when you finally let the emotions in I felt like I was falling into the abyss on a regular basis and that's what I mean by thinking that okay I feel like I'm at rock bottom here and there's like oops no there's a new rock bottom here and a new one and a new one and a new one and I think for me the abyss actually turned out to be the ultimate freedom when I actually let go And giving up and just saying, F it, is different than surrender. And it took Mm. me a while to realize the difference that surrender, for me anyway, I'm certainly no expert on this. I'm, I'm still in flight in some ways. So for me, surrender was really about that the energy was coming from a loving, trusting place. Because as I started coming out the other side, some of the people that I had learned to, to trust who had gone through similar journeys, they said that my attempt to manage my image constantly, that I had my life together, that I was successful, you know, that I, I always looked very put together, you know, all my Instagram feed was perfect, all of this. There was one coach in particular that we were, we were at a mastermind together and he said something so interesting to me. He said, first of all, he opened it by saying, Oh, you're so impressive. You know, you're so accomplished. You have a PhD from Cambridge. You have this super successful coaching business working with amazing leaders from all around the world. And you have two very accomplished children and you have a beautiful home and He was saying all those things and I felt myself kind of puffing up a bit like, yeah, somebody finally sees me. And then he leaned in and he looked at me and he had these swimming pool blue eyes and he looked, it felt like he was looking right through me. He said, I want to tear that shit down. Wow. Because he knew that that's where you, you you were basing your worthiness on all those achievements. It's almost like he was reading out your life as a resume. Yes. And it completely blindsided me because of the way he had positioned it. And he, he was direct, but he did so in such a loving way. He said, who you are is so much more compelling, warm, beautiful, loving than who you're trying so hard to be. He said, all this stuff that you do to try to impress all of us. And he meant in this mastermind group, he said, actually, it keeps me disconnected from you. Hmm. And I just found that I I had never thought of that before, that the very thing that since a child I had learned would give me love, all of a sudden somebody that I really trusted was telling me that that very thing was actually getting in the way of the thing that I wanted more than anything, which was deep connection and not to have to perform all the time. So that was like a lightning rod moment for me. Yeah. And it's so powerful to have that realization that the one thing that has served you well before is now starting to interfere with living a valuable life, not allowing you that deep, meaningful connection anymore. And it is fascinating when we look at the research around how perfectionists are perceived by total strangers, having, you know, a conversation with someone and appearing to be perfect and then having the same conversation with someone else and just 
appearing to just be yourself, just talking about whatever you want in a real way and being kind of authentic and vulnerable. It's not rocket science to figure out who's more likable out of the two. <laughs> we assume that it's going to be the, the one that's perfect. You think I'm coming across in a perfect way, but it's actually not very likable because it's not tangible. I don't, it's just facade. It's not just surface. I don't know who you are behind all of that, saying all the right things. And it makes us feel shit about who we are ourselves. So when we talk to someone appearing to be perfect, it's actually really intimidating and we don't like it. So we much prefer to speak to that other person who's a bit rough around the edges and we feel, you are like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So that's where connection comes from. And it's so fascinating, Mandy, that you were hustling for approval for so long to kind of use Brene Brown's words around connection and belonging, that it's more important to, to dare to be vulnerable so that we can belong, even if it means that we alienate some people. You know, we're hustling for that approval. It's just going to keep us in that element of exhaustion that you are in. And you've really painted that picture of physical and mental exhaustion, of hitting the metaphorical and actual literal wall, not being able to function anymore. So it's fascinating because I've had a similar conversation with Nikki Lowe around how juggling kind of motherhood with the business can be really difficult. And she experienced adrenal fatigue. So it's a great episode to go back to listen to as well. I guess when we're now hearing this, it's a very powerful story. If you are now, with all the wisdom you have today, from all the healing you've done, and I know that that's still ongoing, I'm pretty sure that it's still going to be lifelong for most of us who are recovering people pleasers or recovering overachievers, that it's it's almost like sobriety from addiction. You're still going to be an addict for the rest of your life, if you, even if you haven't touched alcohol for a long time. When you look back at it now, with all the wisdom you have today, what would you say to yourself, seeing yourself lying there in bed, trying to get up, trying to frantically do all the things that you were previously doing, trying to get back into the achievement, what would you tell her? What would you tell that older version of you? Or younger version of you, sorry. It's the same thing I would tell myself now and do tell myself on a regular basis is just hold it lightly. Hold all of it lightly because I realized how much I had been white-knuckling through all of my life. So I would say less efforting, dear one. I would say more connection with yourself. I would say more self-kindness and it's all going to be okay. I know that sounds like such a cliche, but the real you, the one who is filled with all her idiosyncrasies and squinchiness and all of these quirks and foibles, that's the you that people love. That is the you that people want to connect with and let her out. Like, all of us have a part of us that's vulnerable and we all have our own variation of weird. And these are the things that make us so interesting and lovable that when somebody thinks about you who might be on the other side of the world and they think about you and a smile creeps across their face and they get that kind of warm center feeling in, the, in their chest when they think about you. It's not because your hair was on point every time they saw you. It's probably the way that, you know, you laughed off key after drinking a couple of glasses of champagne or your great hugs or what a great listener you are or how you watch somebody's kids when they were on their knees with exhaustion. It's, it's those sorts of things that actually matter, not the stuff that we think matters. That's what I would do. And then I would give her the biggest hug and we'd probably cry together. <laughs> hmm. And... It's actually so, it's so poignant because I still do this. I have to remind myself of this on a regular basis because as you said, it doesn't go away. It's so imprinted. Hmm. It's old habits, isn't it? And the brain loves familiarity. So it's going to look for patterns that it recognizes to replicate that again. Because, you know, it's better the devil you know. It's something that we think is tried and tested. I'll do it again, even though I know it doesn't have the best consequences. Hmm. The human brain is funny that way. And I guess we've been, obviously we've been talking a lot about this journey of recovery from overachieving, from high striving. And when you think about yourself in the present moment, because you are still achieving things, a lot of people assume that if we then lay down these weapons, if we surrender into this, it means that I'm never allowed to achieve again. And that's often we get caught up in the sort of all or nothing around achievement, that it's not, it's not either or, you know, it's not either you achieve to, to your death or you do nothing and you become lazy and complacent. We can still use our energy and our passions to pursue our purpose, but not in a way that's kind of costing us an arm and a leg. So when you look at yourself today, what do you do on a, 
kind of on a daily or weekly basis to try to get that balance, to, to try to switch off from achievement? You know, what do you do to pause? One of the things that I do is I meditate a lot daily. That's a non-negotiable for me. And I journal occasionally. One of the things that I journal about or I meditate about is, remember when I told you I sat on that mountainside in Sedona with a shaman? Mm. He said something that forever changed my life. It just wasn't the right point to reveal it in the story there, but this is the right moment. He said to me, Mandy, you think that you've become so successful because of your overachieving? And then he sort of smiled and paused. And then he said, you've become successful in spite of your overachieving, not because of it. Yes. And all of a sudden, I just had this, my eyes turned into spirographs. I was like, what? What did you just say? And it made complete sense. It was one of those cosmic moments where the right word hits you at the precise ripeness of your ability to take that to heart and not deflect it, not intellectualize it. It just landed perfectly. And I will never, ever forget that moment. That was like a real game changer for me. So when I started to learn how to create habits around being successful, not because of my overachieving, but in spite of it, I understand differently. See, that gives my brain, because I have a, you know, I'm very heady. It gives my brain something to do when I instruct it. If I were to be successful, not because of my overachieving, but, you know, because of who I am, what would that look like? If I make that into a, a calendar, if I make that into what, how I become successful, it means that I tra- I give spaciousness to myself every day. And I do that by meditating. I absolutely suck at meditating when I'm left to my own devices because I just like look at the skirting boards or wonder how many <laughs> how many minutes have passed. So <laughs> I use an app. I use the Calm app. Uh, there's a couple of those that I, the meditations on there that I have on repeat and they just work for me. I make sure that I'm sleeping properly because I get all crotchety and radioactive if I don't have enough sleep. So sleep has become non-negotiable. And this is again how I'm interpreting the shaman's words. It's not because of my overachieving. It's in spite of it. So if I were Mm. creating this life, this is something I would encourage all listeners to do, that if you think about being successful because of you, because of how you be in the world and because people love spending time around you, what would success look like? That How would that fit into your day? So that also means I need to move my body. Even exercise went off the table when I got desperate. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to work. That's all I'm going to do. It wasn't great for my family. Family time is essential. Uh, Time with my husband is essential. Time for me to go out. It's it's all the things that we read about, but we somehow think that they don't apply to us. Spending time in nature, fueling myself properly, and just noticing, this has probably been the biggest thing, is noticing that I have a lot of doubts but I don't need to believe that those voices are caps lock truth. I can doubt my doubts. I'm allowed to doubt my doubts. They can have their own opinions that have nothing to do with my opinions. So I think realizing, and maybe meditation has helped, maybe all these healing modalities that I've done over the past six years have helped, but I just noticed the torrent of thoughts and rampant self-doubt and just the way that that critic is constantly taking cheap pot shots at me from the sides And I can just hold it lightly and smile and even laugh and just realize that it's doing its best. It's not wrong. I can't ditch it. It's just trying to keep me safe and familiar. So I think this has also part of what my day looks like is changing how I'm in relation to my inner critic, which may not be exactly what you're asking for in terms of what my day looks like, but it's it's changing those really fundamental things for me, creating spaciousness, whether that's by walking, moving my body, meditating, sleeping. And plus not overbooking my diary within, you know, that there's no space between sessions. I think this has been a massive thing for me of what my new life looks like. If I'm going to be somebody who achieves because of who I be, not just what I do, I want to make sure that I can bring energy and love into engagements, that I can add value, not just by the content of what I say, but also by, by the energy that I bring. So I need to fuel that energy. That's, that's Absolutely. conscious in my, in my day-to-day life. 
And I guess that you're saying that's maybe not what you're asking for, but that's actually precisely what I'm asking for, is how do we do these things even when the inner critic is coming along for the ride? You know, how do we how do we pause if if pausing means, oh, I'm going to go for a walk, but along on that walk, you have your inner critical voice saying, you're not walking fast enough, you're not burning enough calories, or you shouldn't be doing this because you have to go back and, and do your stuff. I mean, I've, this is a very common thing I hear from uh, how my clients kind of approach self-caring practices, that they do it with a competitive self-critical motivation. It's almost like I'm doing it to do damage to myself, but I'm not really going to admit that. It's just that my inner critic in the back of my head is saying, go on a longer walk, or why are you walking you should be running that there's almost always kind of adding an insult to injury there that is I could always strive further I could always do more and then when we think of that then actually self-caring practices can can be really treacherous because I can be quote-unquote doing all the right things to keep myself mentally and physically and emotionally well but if I'm not doing that with a self-compassionate motivation, it can be really treacherous. Yes. Like we can yes. penalize ourselves into yes. it, like punish yourself into another walk or punish yourself to go to bed on time, whatever that is for you, because otherwise you're going to be worthless tomorrow. Correct. Well, actually, that, that's that's very different to saying I'm choosing rest because I know that my creativity and my productivity and my well-being comes from a place of rest. That's very different to say, go to bed, you lazy asshole, you need to do a lot to do tomorrow. Yeah. And then you can't sleep anyway because your brain hasn't switched off. So I think the spaciousness and the shifting of the relationship with that inner voice, mm. realizing I can't ditch it, I can't get it surgically removed, I can't numb it, I can't orphan it off, I can't. I just have to learn how to coexist with it and just take it less seriously. Understand that we can agree to disagree. I can doubt my doubts. And I've just found that that is the thing that actually reassures it. Absolutely. And it sounds like we've had similar transformational experience. I've not been on a mountaintop, but I've been on, you know, a couple of retreats in Thailand. And it's almost taking me the commitment of traveling across the world to do something I could have done right here, right now. Mm. It's almost like I'm making this commitment. I'm going to face this. I'm going to travel there with my plane ticket and face this and talk to this sort of the, the inner demons that we have and knowing that this inner critic will not go away. You know, I'm, I'm very passionate about spreading that message around, you know, um, ditch the inner critic or fuck off inner critic and all of these things we see as hashtags on Instagram, it does not work. There's nothing in the research around your inner critical voice to suggest that you can get rid of it uh, by fighting it with sort of its own weapons. You know, you can't fight fire with fire. We have to find a way to soothe it because it's connected to your adrenal system. It's connected to your cortisol and adrenaline. And if you start to attack yourself for the fact that you attack yourself, you know, you've got a double whammy of attacking there. Yeah. So we need to do what you've been doing of kind of finding a way to figure out what is it trying to protect me from? What is it trying to keep me safe from? What would it mean if I failed? What would it mean if I made a mistake? Ah, that's threatening my self-worth. Okay, well, it makes sense that you're keeping a lookout for this. However, the way you do it isn't really serving me so well anymore. Uh, and I'm thank you for being here. You're still part of the family, but you're no longer running the show. Correct. And I think this is particularly for recovering overachievers. It's this paying attention to what it is that this voice is trying to keep us safe from. What is it that would truly soothe it? What would be a balm? What practices can I put into my life that don't try to get rid of it, but integrate it in a way that it can feel... <sighs> now, the inner critic... Such a bad rap. I bet it, it's exhausted too, frankly. You know, like if we... <laughs> probably is. It probably is. And it's and it's and it must be because it's super quick. I don't know if anyone heard that little noise in the background, which is coming from my computer. And within a split second, my mind went, oh God, why didn't you even think to turn that off? Or oh, everyone's going to notice it. Will it be possible to edit it out? And then the second after I'm like, it's okay. Okay, it's fine. I've got this. Yeah, I, I hear you. And that's how quickly this works. It's literally within, you know, less than a second, you know, split seconds, your mind goes into overdrive to beat you up for the things that you do wrong. And that is exhausting. You know, I, that's probably one of the most common things I hear from high strivers is that I can't bear being in my head anymore. It's exhausting. I get so many thoughts. You know, we know on average you get something like 40,000 thoughts a day anyway. And if a lot of them are really, really negative and self-critical or full of self-hatred, of course you're going to be exhausted. Yeah. So we're thinking about that nourishing balm can often be about 
slowing down and soothing the nervous system. And this is why I'm very passionate about physical exercise that isn't HIT. And I know that's it's not for everyone. And I'm really not hating on Joe Wicks. He's fantastic. Um, it's not about that. It's just about what works for him. And for high striving people who are already on the brink of burnout, HIT exercise probably isn't the best thing for you. You know, slow swimming, yoga, that isn't like standing on your head to try to perform yoga, but more intuitive connecting with your body and your breath. Uh, slow walks, mindful physical exercise, like mindful personal training, where you're moving your body consciously, building strength in a slow and steady way. All of those physical exercises are much better for the clients that I work with. And I don't know, if, how about you, Mandy? Well, how do you move your body today that isn't the same as that kind of punitive drop down and, and give me 300 push-ups kind of sense of working out? Uh, I do a walk jog, which is more walking than jogging a couple of times a week. And then on off days, I do some stretching and some light weights and not 300 push-ups anymore. I do 20 and then my arms start going a little bit wobbly. And the, the point is I want to have a strong body. I'm not looking to be a size two. I'm looking to feel strong because I'm looking to nourish my body. I, I want to get my chi moving. I want to feel oxygenated. So I think it's, I've changed the outcome that I'm seeking. I mean, it's not that I'm not aspiring to look good in a pair of jeans and what have you, but that's not my main driver that I have to look good so that other people will think, oh, look, she's fit or what have you. It's more like, maybe it's a middle-aged woman thing too. Like, I want to feel good for myself. I want to feel good in my own skin. I want to be able to create my own standards as opposed to trying to upkeep the impossible standards that when left to its own devices, my inner critic will give me. So there's a lot of things that change in middle age and a lot of things that we, we always as a society tend to focus on the bad things. But this is one of the things too, as, as I'm rising from these ashes of fibromyalgia and adrenal fatigue and exhaustion and just leaving an old way of being behind, one thing that I'm really stepping into is this feeling deeply empowered as as a woman who, this ain't my first rodeo. Like I've been around for a while. I know who I am. I know what I want. And I'm just not available for things that sap my energy or where I feel that my worthiness is somehow not under my own control. Mm. And that's where we're coming back to those non-negotiables that you're protecting, fiercely protecting your time and the self-care practices that you need from a self-compassionate point of view, not because you want to punish yourself, but I need this to be well because I deserve to be well. Yeah. And I often talk to people about that around how now you're not looking after yourself just so you can go to work better. You're looking after yourself because you deserve to feel better. You deserve to be well in yourself so that you can face your difficulties, face your challenges day to day, rather than adding insult to injury and just going, getting really caught up in that next thing that you said. Or sometimes I love what Anna Martha says around sort of just... I'm, I'm justing, I'm just going to do this thing. Or I guess that's a similar thing to your next mm -hmm. thing. And I think that can be really treacherous because we do get so wrapped up in that dopamine kick, the reward system of the vanity metrics. The vanity metrics could be how many likes and followers you have on Instagram or which size you get into or what the scales say. But none of that really says anything about our true worth and what we actually find meaningful and matters in life. So as we're bringing it to a close now, I just want to think about one more thing because I think we talked a lot about how we can pause without it being punitive and, and clearly what you're passionate about. So we talked a lot about sort of purpose and moving forward with a different mindset. But let's think about play. How do you play, Mandy? What was What is fun, creative and innovative for you? One of the ways that I love to play is writing. I used to write in my closet at home growing up in Canada, sitting in there like writing novels, poems, short stories, and then I would rip them up and burn them, lest somebody look at them and point and laugh. When I grew up, when I was doing my PhD, I was going to be all very, very serious, be a professor. And then I ended up working in the city. And I had this little flirtation with writing again. I started to court this magazine editor and I was sending her ideas and I was, I, I was basically trying to wear her down so that I could send her a piece of writing. And this went on for about six months. Uh, it's still a magazine that's around today. I won't name it, but I, I sent her cupcakes. I sent her ideas. I was like just sending her funny paragraphs and snippets of my writing. And finally, one day she said, okay, Mandy, 
You get A plus, you know, you that dopamine kick right there. You get A plus mm-hmm. for persisting. Send me a piece. Send me a piece and we'll see if we can get into the magazine. I completely froze and I deleted the email. <laughs> Yeah. And, yeah. and I was like in my late twenties. And then I just, I, I keep coming back to this and I, I've, I got so frozen by the idea that my writing had to be something as opposed to it could just be for pleasure. So this whole journey that I've described to you today, I've been working on a book of this for the last six years. I don't know if it's ever going to be something. It's out agenting at the moment. And at the beginning, when I was working with my book coach, she's like, oh, this is going to be a New York Times bestseller. And again, I froze. And I thought, I wonder what's going on there. Isn't that interesting? And then mm. I realized that when my fun thing, when my pleasure thing all of a sudden had to be something, that's when I would freeze up. And the way that I've been able to just allow this to be a place of play and a place of fun for me is it doesn't need to be successful. It doesn't need to be a bestseller. It doesn't need to be life-changing for millions of people. I mean, I would love that, but that's not my objective for doing it. So this place of play for me is sitting at the page. And I mean, some days it really sucks big time and I'm just, I can't get anything out or it sounds terrible, but it's, it's a long game. And being able to take pain and to process it in a way that it makes sense and it can become a thing of beauty in hindsight, the way I've mosaiced it together, that for me feels really nourishing. And really rewarding in a different way to the, the fitful, you know, little kicks of dopamine, which is, which is funny, really, because if anyone who's published a book or written a bigger piece of writing know it's a long end game, that you actually don't get much reward. Um, throughout the process it takes a very long time from you know the budding idea to this book is out in your hands and I know that firsthand as my first book is out next year in January and Yay! I had the same elements <laughs> yeah I'm very, very proud of it but I had the same elements when I had you know an amazing glowing endorsement from Anya Hayes the first line said this book will change lives and I just went oh my shit fuck. It, <laughs> it's what it, it, it won't it won't it won't change lives at all or what if it will and and how will I cope with that and you know it's that one of those things that we don't just fear failure we fear yes, success as well yes this is what I mean it's like the inner critic hedges against any possible scenario and I just thought you know what I'm not available for that anymore I'm doing this for no. me so yeah. to say that this book is going to change a million lives, that's not my business. All I can do is show up and have as much fun as I can. And fun doesn't always mean like euphoric and blissful. Sometimes it's hard work, but there's, there's pleasure in working through wanting to quit at something. There's pleasure for me in allowing my creativity and my imagination to unfurl and think, you know what, this is the place where I, I feel like I need to rein myself in. What if I didn't rein myself in? And often those are the best pieces that my editors love, those pieces where yeah. I wanted to rein myself in. So maybe that sounds like a strange kind of fun. But as I said, like, let's just fly our freak flags. This is my idea of a good time. <laughs> yeah, and that's fine. That's and it's not up to anyone else to decide what is fun for you. I think being flexible means doing what works and doing what works for you. And your kind of cup of tea is very different to someone else's cup of tea. And and luckily, you will still meet other people like myself who will find the same cup of tea quite delicious. So I'm sure we could buddy up in our little author club. And I, I definitely find that writing a book has been sort of almost like a you know a year and a half of personal therapy. There's so many processes you can work through, especially in a critic moments. So it's been a huge eye opener for me. And I think I'm definitely stronger um, and more matured at the end of having write, written this book now than I was at the mm. beginning. And that's not at all just about having researched everything about love and relationships. I think it's just there's a humility in putting something out in the world that you don't know how other people will respond to, but knowing that this is just what you must do. I've yes. had that same calling since I was a child and, and writing things just from my desk drawer. And I'm like, this is just something I must do. Yes. Anyway, we've been, God, this has been such a fulfilling conversation for me. And I no doubt this will probably be one of my most favorite episodes. Let's see what those brings up for you, Mandy. <laughs> this is probably going to be one of my best episodes. You did a perfect interview. How do you feel? Is that kicking your system of dopamine? <laughs> I... Just my intention for this conversation was to spend time with you and to connect and to have fun together. So if this ends up transforming lives and people enjoy it, yay, that wasn't my objective. 
Yeah, I was, I was semi-winding you up, but I, I can sort of hear it as well that the discussion we've had will be very well aligned with the people who are tuning into the podcast. So it, it's great. And one final thing I would ask for you is that I ask all my guests to try to give something tangible as a little takeaway to give the good listeners. And that can be either a permission you want to give them or any pressure you want to take off them. What would that be? I would offer that same piece of wisdom that the shaman gave to me as the biggest gift of my lifetime on the side of that mountain saying, you think you've become successful because of your overachieving. Think again, you've become successful in spite of your overachieving. Mm. And I would really invite them to sit with that and think, if it hasn't been my overachieving and my constant hustling for worthiness... What has it been then that's made me successful? And how can I create my life around that beautiful, nourishing, self-compassionate core? And just as a little aside, now that I've started to live more intentionally from that place, my business has skyrocketed. (laughs) Things have become more easeful. I have so many beautiful friendships developing abundance is coming my way like it it just feels like wow I wish I would have known this sooner and yeah I just feel in a happy it doesn't have to be a hustle I don't need to be a hardaholic no no thank you so much for sharing all that Mandy and just to add to your vanity metrics of anyone wanting to follow you where can they find you (laughs) I have two main places where I hang out uh one is on Instagram so you'll find me there I'm sure that will be in your show notes And I also would love people to head on over to my website. I do something which is a little shot of inspiration on every weekday called the Daily Moxie, which is a couple of sentences that lands in your inbox first thing in the morning, depending where you are in the world. And it just really helps you to be, it's almost like a compass for your day. It either is a provocative, loving butt kick to get you to look at things differently or it just makes you think or reconnect with your purpose. So I would love for people to come and hang out with me on Instagram and or on my website. Which both have your name, mandiletto.com and mandiletto on, on Instagram as well. But I will put that in the show notes as well. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm sure we could talk for the rest of the afternoon. But, you know, we also need uh, a little rest now. So let's leave it here. And thank you so much for coming. Thank Mandy. you for having me. This powerful episode with Mandy could really have carried on for hours and I love the beautiful connection I have made with Mandy. She has kindly invited me onto the Enough experiment for Psychologies magazine for December in this year. So if you're interested in building your self-worth with a little bit of experimenting, do come along to Psychologies magazine's website and have a look for the Enough experiment. You can catch me talking about feeling enough in relationships, prioritizing connection over perfection and letting go of some of that people-pleasing you may be doing in your relationship. And until the next time, as always, please do try to take care of yourself. This episode of the Pause Purpose Play podcast was presented by me, Michaela Thomas. And you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk. And because great work rests on having a great team, this episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.